Hi, it's Patrick here. And I think a lot of us, myself included, have a tendency to think of the phenomenon of global English as, as being something very 21st century. You know, English nosing its way into every last podunk town and village across the globe, minus perhaps North Korea. All thanks to the internet and satellites and McDonald's and Lady Gaga. Big thanks to you all. But all of this stuff has really been going on for centuries, just at a slower pace in the past. And just as English has been spreading its tentacles all this time, the smaller languages, they've been biting back. That's not a new phenomenon either, those, those foreign words entering English. Maybe a long-term difference between then and now, or, or the past and perhaps the future, is that in the past, the words became English. They were re-spelled and re-pronounced, and sometimes they even took on slightly different meanings. But essentially, they slotted in grammatically. They didn't fundamentally change the rules of English. This, of course, happens with lots of languages. They take on loan words from other languages, and then they recast them in their own tongue. But things look like they may take a different turn in the future. We always say that, don't we? When we don't know what the future is going to hold, we figure it's going to be something different. But there are all of these Englishes out there now. They're geographically specific in one part of the world or another. And they mix it up with whatever local languages are around. And they've also started to, and maybe they'll continue to do a little bit more, of mixing it up with grammar too, with the grammar of those local languages. It seems that that's where English is headed globalizing and localizing, as people like to say. So today, we're going to look at one of those strands, a strand that's, that's much stronger in British English, actually, than it is in American English. You, maybe it is to British English what Latin American Spanish is to American English. Kind of, sort of. Anyway, it's the influence of languages from South Asia, the Indian subcontinent, on the English language. And this story is told through the story of a particular dictionary published in 1872. They're still around today. The following is produced by BBC Radio 4. Reporting it is poet Daljit Nagra. Here goes. Bungalow. The most usual class of house occupied by Europeans in the interior of India being on one story and covered by a pyramidal roof which in the normal bungalow is of thatch but may be of tiles without impairing its title to be called a bungalow. Most of the houses of officers in Indian cantonments are of this character. Bungalow, just one of the many hundreds of words that's become part of everyday English language thanks to a Victorian doorstopper of a book called Hobson Jobson which set out to describe the language of the British colonial experience on the Indian subcontinent. It is to be remembered that in Hindustan proper, the adjective of or belonging to Bengal is constantly pronounced as Bangla. The probability is that when Europeans began to build houses of this character in Bihar and Upper India, these were called Bangla or Bengal fashion houses that the name was adopted by the Europeans themselves and their followers, and so was brought back to Bengal itself, as well as carried to other parts of India. First published in Britain in 1886, Hobson Jobson has inspired generations of scholars and writers, and maybe even comedians. This is a life, hey, Dad? 
you and me sitting on the veranda, enjoying a perfect English summer's evening. There's nothing English about the word veranda. It's an Indian word. Is it? Of course. They go on about this beautiful language, the Queen's English. Rubbish! Where did the Queen get a word like veranda? She stole it from India. I didn't know that. And shampoo. It's an Indian word. And bungalow, jungle. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. You see, you have these English people sitting on the verandas of their bungalows, looking at the jungle, using their shampoo. Western civilization? Rubbish! Sanjeev Bhaskar and Kavinda Gear in a sketch from BBC's Goodness Gracious Me. Anyone who has a passion for words falls under Hobson Jobson's spell. As a poet, I love prowling through its pages, and I've written several poems that draw on Hobson Jobson. There's one I called This Be the Pucker Verse. Pucker, adjective. Hindustani, pucka. Ripe, mature, cooked and hence substantial, permanent, with many specific applications. A kutcha brick is a sun-dried brick. A pucker brick is a properly kiln-burnt brick. When I looked up pucka in Hobson Jobson, it gave me an impetus to take it away from Jamie Oliver's sparky London-speak and take it more into a historical domain. We'll come back to that poem later. But first, I want to find out more about Hobson Jobson. And who better to ask than the person currently preparing a new edition? There is a huge delight in language that's evident throughout the dictionary. Dr Kate Telcher is reader in English literature at Roehampton University. It's a hugely ambitious attempt to trace linguistic influence, to look at the ways that words of Asian origin have entered the English language and vice versa. So it's all about the distance that words travel. It's about tracing etymologies of words. It's also about looking at words in their context and seeing how they describe a lost way of life. Sudden death. Anglo-Indian slang for a fowl served as a spatchcock, the standing dish at a dak bungalow in former days. The bird was caught in the yard as the traveller entered and was on the table by the time he had bathed and dressed. It should be said that the term Anglo-Indian, as used here, describes the British in India. The complete title of the book is quite a mouthful. Hobson Jobson. A glossary of colloquial Anglo-Indian words and phrases and of kindred terms, etymological, historical, geographical and discursive, by Colonel Henry Yule and A.C. Burnell. Despite that rather academic subtitle, it's a madly unruly and idiosyncratic work stretching to a thousand pages, not so much an orderly dictionary as a passionate memoir of colonial India, rather like an eccentric Englishman in glossary form. What was it used for when it was first published? There was a market for it in India amongst the British serving in India, one review recommended it as an ideal after-dinner reading in camp. It does include a lot of administrative terms, things that the British needed to know. But it was also clearly meant for diversion and entertainment, both for the British serving in India and the British when they had returned home. Mosquito. 
A gnat is so called in the tropics. The word is Spanish and Portuguese, diminutive of mosca, a fly, and probably came into familiar English use from the East Indies. It is related of a young Scotch lady of a former generation who, on her voyage to India, had heard formidable but vague accounts of this terror of the night, that on seeing an elephant for the first time, she asked, Will you be what's called a mosquiti? You can almost imagine the authors chuckling over that one. But who were these men prepared to undertake a 14-year labour of love? It seems that Arthur Bernal and Henry Yule were both extraordinary polymaths. Yule came from a, a family with lots of Indian connections. He himself was in the military. He was a Bengal engineer, which meant that he both saw active service, but that he also did a lot of engineering work. He worked on the canals and on the railways in India. But when he retired, he made his name with this monumental edition of Marco Polo's Travels, which was a sort of edition to end all editions, fantastically and madly annotated, and it won the gold medal of the Royal Geographical Society. After that, he became an expert in all things Asian. He was president of the Royal Asiatic Society. He was in touch with all the scholars working on Asia. In the preface to Hobson Jobson, Henry Yule describes how his collaboration with Arthur Bernal began after a chance meeting in London. He mentioned that he was contemplating a vocabulary of Anglo-Indian words and had made some collections with that view. In reply, it was stated that I likewise had long been taking note of such words and that a notion similar to his own had also been, at various times, floating in my mind and I proposed that we should combine our labours. Burnell was this great linguist. As well as being a magistrate, Burnell was a Sanskritist and a scholar of South Indian languages, and he provided the linguistic expertise that the glossary needed. What's interesting about Hobson Jobson is that it has both this popularising tone but is also rooted in quite rigorous linguistic knowledge. Professor Javid Majid of King's College, London. It's not just a scholarly work, because if you look at some of the entries, you'll see he's reminiscing about customs that the Anglo-Indians had, which he himself had witnessed as a personal observer and indeed participated in. Kedgeri, kitchery. A mess of rice cooked with butter and dal, and flavoured with a little spice, shred onion and the like. A common dish all over India, and often served at Anglo-Indian breakfast tables. In England, we find the word is often applied to a mess of recooked fish served for breakfast, but this is inaccurate. Fish is frequently eaten with kedgeree, but is no part of it. Food is an important part of Hobson Jobson. Words like chilli, this is defined as the popular Anglo-Indian name of the pod of red pepper... There is little doubt that the name was taken from Chile in South America, whence the plant was carried to the Indian archipelago and thence to India. I like how we get a mini-history of the Chile. I also like the idea of it being described as a popular Anglo-Indian name when it's become a household word. Who doesn't know what a Chile means now? But here it's been recorded probably for the first time in a Western dictionary, and I love the idea of witnessing the birth of that word. 
I particularly like the way that words seem to travel around the globe. I sometimes think of language and of these words as being like seamen or Alaska's jumping ship at every port. And one of my favourite examples of this comes in just a tiny, short little entry. Bandao, imperative, to tie or make fast. This and probably other Indian words have been naturalised in the docks on the Thames frequented by Lascar crews. I have heard a London lighterman in the Victoria docks throw a rope ashore to another Londoner, calling out Bandau. So there you have this fantastic notion that a word that comes from an Indian seaman is being used by two Londoners to talk to each other. Now, you may be wondering about the title Hobson Jobson. It turns out to be based on a mishearing, a garbled, anglicised version of something quite different. Hobson Jobson. My friend Major John Trotter tells me that he has repeatedly heard this phrase used by British soldiers in the Punjab. It is, in fact, an Anglo-Saxon version of the wailings of the Mohammedans as they beat their breasts in the procession of the Moharam. Yahasan, Yahusain. Yahasan, Yahusain. How does that sound like Hobson Jobson? The truth is that maybe the double-barrelled word Hobson Jobson was easier on the British ear. One of the things that Yule rather delightedly points out is that there are, there are lots of these rhyming reduplications in Indian languages. This is a, is a feature of Indian languages, but also of English, particularly English in its nursery form. Nauka Chauka, the servants. One of those jingling, double-barrelled phrases in which Orientals delight even more than Englishmen. As regards Englishmen, compare hugger-mugger, hurdy-gurdy, tip-top, higgledy-piggledy, hocus-pocus, tit-for-tat, topsy-turvy. Harem-scarem, roly-poly, fiddle-faddle, rump-and-stump, slip-slop. So he has this kind of exhaustive list which demonstrates his real relish and delight in the sound of language. I love these rhyming words in Hobson Jobson. They're such a familiar feature of my mother tongue, and I can see how it's inspired so many writers, most famously Salman Rushdie, whose novel Midnight's Children is richly sprinkled with phrases such as writing shating, budding shooting. And in fact, Rushdie wrote a, a little essay on Hobson Jobson, which he, he talks about. Some of this language is almost enough to make one regret the passing, <laughs> passing of Empire, because it's so delightful. But then one remembers what it was like, and one can't give a damn. Uh, give a damn is one of, the, one of the phrases which Yule thinks may have originated in India. Dam. Originally an actual copper coin. Damri is a common enough expression for the infinitesimal in coin, and one has often heard a Briton in India say, No, I won't give a damri, with but a vague notion what a damri meant. And this leads to the suggestion that a like expression, often heard from coarse talkers in England as well as in India, originated in the latter country, and that whatever profanity there may be in the animus, there is none in the etymology. When such an one blurts out, I don't care a damn. In other words, I don't care a brass farthing. 
When I first came across Hobson Jobson, I was surprised to see some entries which to me as a second-generation Indian immigrant are familiar Punjabi words, but here they were being presented in English alphabet in a dictionary of Anglo-Indian. For example, gali, which means abuse or bad language, I remember using that as a child. To me, it was just a cheeky Punjabi word. It's amazing to think that as a boy growing up in the 70s near Heathrow Airport, I was using the same language as those Victorian men from public schools whilst they were in India. But actual gali's or swear words are rare in Hobson Jobson, something noticed by novelist Amitav Ghosh. He trawled the lexicons of the 19th century to give voice to the polyglot crew in his book Sea of Poppies. He says that compared with some dictionaries of gypsy slang of the same period, Hobson Jobson is rather prudish. There are lacunae in Hobson Jobson because they were Anglo-Indian in the terminology of that time that is Englishmen uh, in India. They looked at it from a certain angle. Uh, they were certainly very very prudish. I do think it's kind of short on obscenities. When you read these English slang dictionaries of the 19th century, they're very rich in obscenity, you know. And none of this is to detract from this astonishing uh, endeavor that they undertook and just the range of uh, references that they provide it's something quite astonishing. Amitav Ghosh has developed his own playful glossary which resembles Hobson Jobson. He calls it the Crestomathy. Other writers too have mined its rich seam of words. Playwright Tom Stoppard has a wonderful scene in his radio play in a native state which went on to the stage as Indian Ink. Set in 1930s India against the backdrop of nationalist uprisings, an English poet played by Felicity Kendall and an Indian portrait painter, played by Sam Dastor, entertain themselves with a conversation using Hobson Jobson words. While having tiffin on the veranda of my bungalow, I spilled kedgeree on my dungarees and had to go to the gymkhana in my pyjamas, looking like a coolie. I was buying chutney in the bazaar when a thug who had escaped from the chalky ran amok and killed a boxwala for his loot, creating a hullabaloo and landing himself in the mulligatawny. I went... Do lally at the Durba, and was sent back to Blighty in a duly feeling rather dicky, with a cup of char and a chit for a chotapeg. Yes, and the Barasab who looks so pucker in his topi sent a coolie to the Memsab. No, 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 no! You can't have Memsab and Sab. That's cheating. And anyway, I've already said coolie. He <laughs> conceded, Miss Crew. You are the Hobson Jobson champion. Ah, oh, you are chivalrous, Mister Das. I enjoyed having the dictionary very, very much. Tom Stoppard. Most of the words I chose are still in use, and I because I had to choose words which the audience uh, would be familiar with. It was fun to write that page, and um, I hope Hobson Jobson lives on as a dictionary. I think that in some sense Hobson Jobson has remade British culture. I think this is because many words of Indian origin found their way via Hobson Jobson into the Oxford English Dictionary. By exploring the words that are in Hobson Jobson, we we start to realize how many words that we use every day we don't even think of particularly as being of Indian origin actually are so words like shampoo words like pajamas words like bangle 
we tend to think of empire in terms of uh, domination and control, in terms of the way power was used and abused. But we can also think of it in more intimate ways. And I think Hobson Jobson allows us to do that. And that's exactly what I love about Hobson Jobson, that it now feels like a benign project of Victorian multiculturalism, where words from Hindi, Malay, Arabic and even Chinese can cohabit and intermingle with English words, words that have themselves been remade by rubbing alongside their new neighbours. But it's not all affectionate and humorous. Professor Javid Majid again. What excites me about Hobson Jobson is what it says about the really quite complicated attitudes the British in India had towards the subcontinent. You know, the British in India never became a hybridized elite. I mean, they culturally and racially define themselves as English. And here it's interesting to look at the entry for the word home in the glossary, where it just quite starkly says that home refers to England. Home. Home always means England. Nobody calls India home, not even those who have been here 30 years or more and are never likely to return to Europe. And yet, in a, in a way, because of the long periods of service there, Indian officials are at home because they're dealing with India in quite a lot of detail. So there is this kind of interesting and careful balancing act. I mean, it captures the colourfulness, the creativity of slang and colloquialisms, but at the same time it has to guard against both going native and becoming vulgar. In the preface to Hobson Jobson, Henry Yule also writes quite provocatively that Words of Indian origin have been insinuating themselves into English ever since the end of the reign of Elizabeth and the beginning of that of King James, when such terms as calico, chintz and gingham had already affected a lodgment in English warehouses and shops and were lying in wait for entrance into English literature. I think the fear there he's articulating is of a kind of reverse colonisation, that Indian languages might somehow colonise the English language. I think there is a, an almost sort of innate sense of British cultural superiority. I think that runs throughout the dictionary. One thing that the compilers note is that Hindustani verbs, when they travel into English, are often in the imperative form, so that they are giving orders, giving commands. But often these verbs are also about violence in some way. For instance, to pakarao is to lay hold, generally of a recalcitrant native. Uh, to gabrao is to bully. All this language obviously relates to the British colonial role. So are Colonel Yule and Arthur Burnell people one might enjoy meeting? Novelist Amitav Ghosh thinks not. No. I don't think I would at all. I enjoy the book so much, but it's absolutely ridden with uh, ideas of racial separation. I enjoy the work, but I know that I would never be a guest at their dinner party. <laughs> it's these shades of light and dark, intimacy and distance in Hobson Jobson that I've explored in some of my own poems. This be the pucker-verse. Ah, the Raj... Our mother incarnate, Victoria Imperatrix, rules the septed sphere. She oversees legions of maiden fishing fleets that break the waves to net the love of a heaven Etonian. 
fates on lawns with mansion-whacking banks or dances by moonlight at the Viceroy. The Viceroy's ball! My poem is an extended description of Victorian men doing very well out of empire. The barrack room borough pegs of brandy, pani and pink gin and toddy to do lally flappings on jaldi pankawala for six meal days, including tiffin with humps and peacock and tongue. Barapeg, Barney and Tiffin are all words in Hobson Jobson. I use these words to help exoticise the poem, but beneath the exotics lies a darker world. For example, the word notch, and I know from childhood that it means dance, but it's described in Hobson Jobson as a ballet dance performed by women. In my poem, I've used notch to suggest crude interaction between English men and Indian women in the back streets. I suspect a very different ballet's taking place there. The rum-twirling, sabre-curved mustachios, lavish zananas behind bazaars with a fruity hookah for the breathless notch that leads to ayers and passerby goodies snookered for saib sport. The product of this liaison would be illegitimate children that neither the English nor the Indians wanted. The poem darkens up towards the end by referring to those children. For sahib sport that ends in the hushed-up beshti births of half-breed bastards, growing up cursed as mad dogs and vagabonds in a jolly good lingam land overflowing with hops and jopsons of holy and opium and silk and spice and all the gems of the shafted earth. For me, Hobson Jobson is a word hoard, just like Seamus Heaney or Ted Hughes would regard Anglo-Saxon as their word hoard. I love coming across new words such as Ulu Belong, which means a chosen warrior, a champion. But the way that first word Ulu is spelt is with three O's at the beginning. When do you ever see an English word with three O's in a row? I really want to try and use this word, so one of my projects is to find the right verse in which to place Ulu Belong. Dr Kate Telcher points out that I'm not the first poet to be seduced by the charms of Hobson Jobson. Well, if you turn to amok, the phrase to run amok, which originates in a Malay practice, Malay national method of committing suicide according to the glossary. I mean, there are four pages on this. Uh, if you turn it over, you can see these long narratives in the illustrative quotations. And then again, the way that it enters into British culture. You have Dryden, the 17th century English poet, runs an Indian muck at all he meets. And the 18th century poet Alexander Pope Satire's my weapon, but I'm too discreet to run amok and tilt at all I meet. So there you really do get the sense of Indian words entering into the language of British poets. That's one of the things that really interests me about Hobson Jobson, the way that you do see very early on these words are being used by uh, poets and writers, and so that we are one in a long tradition, that is it. And what became of Yule and Bernal? Sadly, Burnell died several years before Hobson Jobson was published, but even then, 
Yule couldn't help but keep adding obsessively to the mounting pile of words. The subject, indeed, had taken so comprehensive a shape that it was becoming difficult to say where its limits lay, or why it should ever end, except for the old reason which had received such poignant illustration, Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Art is long, life is short. There was no reason to stop other than the fact that they were getting ill and dying. That perhaps explains why they include all sorts of words that shouldn't strictly be in the dictionary. Umbrella. This word is, of course, not Indian or Anglo-Indian, but the thing is very prominent in India, and some interest attaches to the history of the word and thing in Europe. And they trace umbrella from ancient times to the present day, and they include lots of extraordinary quotations. The knowledge and use of this serviceable instrument seems to have gone through extraordinary eclipses. It is frequent as an accompaniment of royalty in the Nineveh sculptures. It was in general Indian use in the time of Alexander. It occurs in old Indian inscriptions, on Greek vases, and in Greek and Latin literature. It was in use at the court of Byzantium and at that of the great Khan in Mongolia, in medieval Venice, and more recently in the semi-savage courts of Madagascar and Ashanti. See also Chata and Sombrero. So far, so scholarly. But what is wonderfully and typically eccentric about Hobson Jobson is that Yule then can't resist a digression purely for the reader's entertainment. 1850. Advertisement posted at the door of the British Association meeting at Edinburgh. The gentleman who carried away a brown silk umbrella yesterday may have the cover belonging to it, which is of no further use to the owner, by applying to the porter at the Royal Hotel. Completely irrelevant and digressive, but entertaining. I know I'll be returning to Hobson Jobson again and again for pleasure as well as inspiration. But for now, it's time to take off my topi, slip into my pyjamas and go sit on the veranda for Kedri washed down with a butter glass of jai. Right, where is my tiffinwala? I'm right here. Now that really would be a case of reverse colonisation. Poet Daljit Nagra reported that. I'll post a link to his personal website at theworld.org slash language. You can read about him there. You can read a little bit about his bio, for example, that he was born in Britain, but his parents, they came to Britain from India just a little bit before he was born, and they spoke Punjabi. Also, should you be so inclined, you can get a hold of any number of Hobson Jobsons. They're still out there today. The particular edition that was discussed here, edited by Kate Telsher, who you heard from, that edition is coming out next year, 2013. Again, I'll post a link. And I'm really glad that Daljit Nagra didn't just stay whimsical in his report. He, he actually took on the racism, the jingoism, the darker side in Hobson Jobson of colonialism. Too often these fun and quirky language things, they're, they're just allowed to stand only as fun and quirky. And there's so much more. It's really missing a whole chunk of the story not to go the extra mile, while also tapping into the fact that this is a tremendously entertaining book. So, well done for reminding us that the history of Anglo-Indian word exchange can be a downer too. Woohoo! Let's hear it for downers. The producer of that documentary was Mukti Jane Campion, and it was a culture-wise production for BBC Radio 4. 
You can find posts and other pod information at theworld.org slash language or on Facebook at the World in Words page or on Twitter. I tweet there under the name Patricox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. That's it for now. I hope to be back sometime soon with Cartoon Queen Carol. The stars, they're not really aligning for us right now. But as soon as our schedules converge, I'll lasso her into the studio for more of this. But tiny cells and amoebas, do they have male-female? I don't know. They don't. They seem sexless. <laughs> <laughs> jellyfish and things. Yeah, baby, amoeba. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm a male jellyfish. And <laughs> don't you forget it. <laughs> the moderators could just interrupt and sort of say, you're not answering the question. Stop it. I don't know why they just don't verbally slap them around and just kind of say, cut it out. I'm here with Patrick, and it's time to talk words. New words, old words, censoring everything. (laughs) See you next time.